Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Foolish. Yeah. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. And as usual, we've got two special guests lined up for you. That's not usual, but usually we have good guests, but today we've got two of them. We're going to be chatting to Kay Scott and Claire Gabriel, two female boxers, who are going to discuss the fact that the IBA is trying to force amateur boxers to retire at 40. Should they be allowed to go on? And we'll have a discussion about that. And uh, I think you'll find it very interesting. There is also a petition on change.org if you feel, after you've listened to their interview, you want to sign it. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. You are indeed. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and John, before we go ahead, should just yeah. mention, if you remember on our podcast 108, uh, we spoke about the centenary of football, yes. soccer, between Australia and New Zealand. We were talking with Nick Gort, who had written the book Burning Ambition, and they were saying about there was an Ashes trophy that had been built. It had been lost. They couldn't find it. The great news is it's now been located. And that is fantastic. And, and the actual um, trophy itself is apparently constructed from a combination of New Zealand honeysuckle wood and Australian maple. And it's a wooden casket that contains the ashes of cigars smoked by the Australian captain Alex Gibb and the New Zealand captain George Campbell following the first meeting between the two nations back in June 1923. And uh, I just think it's great that they finally found this and hopefully now the two nations can compete for so it once again. On the 100th anniversary of the trophy, being, it's been refound. Yeah, it was lost. Uh, well, that's why it came up, because they wrote the book yeah, yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and suddenly everyone realised that there was one, and I believe the it's last... It's just a coincidental time for it to suddenly reappear. Well, apparently it was because there was all this dis- discussion about it, and good, it was saying good, that good. 70 years have passed, um, and it's the grandchildren of the former Australian Soccer Football Association chairman, Sydney Story, they discovered the prize possession uh, in pristine condition, and it had just been stored alongside a collection of... Uh, all of his old footballing artefacts. So, Grandad's passed away. We've got to clean the house out. Is that what, is that the sort of story? Sounds it like it, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, what's in this box? Yeah, whose ashes are in this? And it's cigar ashes. Oh, look, it's great. It's but it's great. It's back. I mean, oh, absolutely. It, you just want trophies like that to to resurface and be competed for again. Well, hopefully they'll make it that it, it will that will now be the trophy that gets presented every year the same way the urn is allegedly presented but that's like the manning cup in hockey between australia and new zealand i've been asking where that is and no one seems to know where that is because that used to be contested all the time and i think the last time it was contested was about 1990s See, i always thought that the whole point of these cups and stuff was that you just kept them and played from every year yeah like, absolutely the, the fa cup you hold up when you win it as a captain at Wembley this year, is going to be the same cup they've been holding up for how long? Oh, that one. I mean, I think that they've had three FA Cups, if I'm correct. Because they run out of room, don't they? Well, and also because they get pretty um, tired or battered or whatever because okay. um, they're in the bath with the players or the showers and go on the bus afterwards. But I think, yeah, this is the third one, but I think it's about 50 years old or probably longer. I mean, I remember I touched it once, and I was yeah. like, "Woo!" Does it have all of the teams that have ever won it on? Is that too much? No, nah, it's too much on the, the the latest one. I think it would just go back X amount of years. I wouldn't 
know how many years it goes. You know, it's still called the FA Cup. It's not called. And the, the design is exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, it's not called the Sainsbury Select Cup or anything like that, is it? I'm so glad they don't do that. Well, it's, it's happened. It does indeed. But am I going to get us started today? Yeah, you go first. Okay, uh, I'm, I've got a, something I want to say at the end of the show, but I'm going to just study now on, focus now rather, on, I suppose, representative teams. And I don't know whether this is happening outside of Australia, but it's really beginning to annoy me that we're having representative teams, obviously in various age groups, and the coaches are appointed, and then they hold trials. And I'm like, why are you holding trials? Surely as a coach... You go out there and you watch these teams play and you go, oh, there's John Lee playing for Fremantle Coburn. I'm really impressed by him. I'd like him to come in for a trial and see if he's going to fit into our plans for the state team. I understand that you need to maybe have some trials for players or invite some people, but you should be going out there, I think as a coach, cherry-picking the best players to represent the state rather than having them come to you. And, I mean, if you can't go out there, then you could go up to the coach and say, look, I'm coming down today. Who are the players you think I should be looking at that meet the criteria for the team I'm looking for? I'd really like a defender. If you've got a defender that's under 21, under 18, under 16 or whatever. But I think just having this invitation come along. I mean, I'm thinking about it, John. Well, I'd like to play for Australia. You know, I've lived here long enough now. I qualify. So I'm thinking of contacting Cricket Australia and saying, are you going to hold trials? Because I want to come along and have a go. I mean, well, it's just ridiculous. See, I think you're, you're right about one as Well, I think you're right about the aspect that they should be going out and looking. But I also think there should be this sort of um, trials, but they're open trials. So, like, when I was a junior, I went to a state trials one year, and, and it was a huge event as far as numbers go. There was... Three fields in operation with teams playing against others and there were several games and you'd play one, then you wouldn't play one, then you'd blah, blah. It was, it was all over the shop. But they had it all. It was organised all over the shop, yep. if you know what I mean. Um, the next week when the trials were on, half to three quarters of those people were gone and it was two fields with a couple of games happening. And then it got whittled down and whittled down. Now, I think you should still have... Those sorts of trials, but I think it's still incumbent upon, if, especially now with all these centralised programs and all these, and how much of a howdy do they make about them, you should be, as that coach, be going out and watching players in situ as opposed to in trials. A, because you might miss someone because they can't make the trial. Yeah. They, they have to work on that morning that you're having your trials because kids work now. Uh-huh. And, th- and this is why clubs and, and some sports are better. Like soccer here is really bad at players wearing the right numbered shirt. Because I've actually in the past been asked by in, when, in the A-League to go and watch a player to give an assessment because they'd heard this player was good and he was wearing the wrong co- shirt. So, you know, you have to actually find out is that him or is that somebody else? So this is where clubs, again, if they want these players to progress, need to make sure they wear the white sh- right shirts because you never know who's going down there to watch. Yeah. But I agree with you to a, cent- to a certain point that there should be an open trial for those, but you should have already identified X amount oh, of players. Probably and then you have that other trial where people, if they want to come along and think they're good enough, they have the opportunity the, to showcase it. The open trial gives the opportunity. All anybody wants is an opportunity. Yeah. 
And okay, it, so you, that you but you just that. have the one in my book. You have yeah. one one thing where you may have a several games taking place on that day, depending on the numbers. And Swap again, the coaching around. staff are there, yeah, and they can say, okay, we want to have a look at you in a bit more in detail. Same with you. Um, but they can see in those few games whether players can do things and what they're looking for. I, I do remember, because um, the, the, the trials I went to were at Stevens Reserve, and um, I, I, I played a little bit of a game, and then blah, blah. And I was playing at left wing. <laughs> um, and then I, I, we had, had another game, and it was the first time I met Jim Banks. You've met Jim yep, from Fremantle Hockey yep. Club. And he's been around state hockey for decades, and... Uh, he's a great fellow, Jim. And anyway, he was the selector watching this particular trial game down there at Stevens. And maybe 15 minutes, and, and he called me off. Uh, you know, like that. Anyway, as I walked off, he's come over, he's put his arm around me and goes, it's alright son, I've seen enough. I'll see you next week. <laughs> and I made it to yeah. the next week's trial, but I was, you know, it was never going to happen beyond that really. But, you know, they they do, they have an idea yep. pretty early, and they. But that's the thing. If, if you're a good, especially in a day and age where we're starting with under thirteens. Yeah, I mean, the th- but by the, you already have. If you're the under fifteens coach, you already have a whole great big data sheet in front of you. You should have. <laughs> you know, you should have a pretty good idea. Sure, we're talking about age groups where people, so you've still got to do that other work, but all the way through that junior system. The only ones that have got really, really hard work to do is the youngest group. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because I think there is, a, as I say, I, I agree there is a place for those trials. And I, I just remember there was a time when I was playing in a representative team and they brought a player up in England who'd been playing for a village side and where the competition was a little bit easier than when you were playing for a bigger club. And I, I knew this guy actually really well. And it was really sad because he, it was too big a step and he was so out of his depth and it was just horrible to see. And he knew very quickly that he was out of his depth. Um, and that's not nice. And that's why I think you've got to be very careful with these things. And therefore you've got to give players the opportunity to prove themselves before you throw them into that actual representative team. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to go out there and find out and work out if they are ready, if they are good enough. And I, I just want to add one other thing because I find this really bizarre. And this is, again, related to actually hockey. Because I've been told that the under-18s are apparently training on a match day, John, when their club is going to be playing from 6 to 8 in the morning. So then the coach doesn't want them playing for their club sites. That, to me, is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, surely they should be playing for their clubs and they will benefit from playing against better players, alongside better players, learning from the experienced players. To me, that is one of the most crucial parts of a player's development is playing in senior teams with those experienced and better players. Now, the, the, what was the, the guys finished playing? They, they won their tournament, didn't they? Oh, this is the under-21s now. Yeah, this is different, that's a different thing, I think. Yeah. Is it? Well, okay, yeah, they finished their tournament, was it on a Wednesday or a Tuesday? I can't remember, yeah. Yeah, and then they, they weren't allowed to play that Following that weekend. weekend, yeah. But they were all at the game I was commentating, drinking beers and having... No, that, that's part of their recovery. That carbo-loading is a very important, special part of their recovery. Well, you'd be the expert on I, that. I would be. 
Um, I, I look. Why, why the hell should a, a, a state under eighteen team take precedence over the top level of club hockey? Honestly, that's a, that is a joke. And six o'clock in the morning, they'll be well prepared for all of their six o'clock matches now, won't they? <laughs> Honestly, I get it. Why Australia has to the men's team and the women's team train at that time of day because they all have to go off and work. Six o'clock on a Saturday morning? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'd have struggled. Well, you think about it. Half of them, will, half of them, will have to get their parents to drive them there. Yep. And not all of them will have licences, and maybe not everybody who's got a licence is going to have access to a car. But just six o'clock in the morning for an under 18s team, we place far too much emphasis on the importance of these junior teams. Honestly, it's great for the individual. It's nice, yay, rah rah, all of that. But really, how important is it? It's not very. No, it's it's not, and I agree with you. It should be an honour, and it should be something for the players to enjoy. And Absolutely. I was, and I went back actually. He was doing some checking on something the other day, and I went back to uh, look at the teams that were the Australian representative teams at under 16s. And do you know do you know how many of them go on to play oh, for Australia? You might get two out of every age group. Ooh, you're lucky too. Yeah, yeah. You might get yeah. two. Out one of every one of the years zero. Yeah. The following year one. Yeah. And we all know that. That's yeah. So, so that's. But it's backing up your importance thing. Yeah. It shows that there's too much importance being placed on this because it will not give you the prediction as to who's going to go on and play at the senior national team. And you know what? I bet you that those that one from every year or that the odd one that comes through, they're pretty well known. They're one of the three blokes in this team that could probably walk into a if they stick to if their progression keeps going. And I reckon even the coaches know most of them are just not going to ever play at that level. Same as you know in your own club. You see your juniors come through and you know, oh, he's a good little player and tries really hard, blah, blah, but probably only going to be a twos player. Yeah. Which is fine. Be a twos player. Enjoy it. Exactly. This is Floyd Mayweather Sr., and you are now listening to the Not The Footy Show. Well, as I mentioned, uh, normally we only have one special guest on the show, but today we've got two, and uh, we're really looking forward to catching up with them, and that is Kay Scott and Claire Gabriel, and they're going to be talking to us now about the situation that they find themselves in, that they're going to have to retire from amateur boxing because they've turned 40. Hey, Scott and Claire Gabriel, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you. For Thank you. Me. Well, we'll start, Claire, with you because obviously we've spoken to you in the past. And uh, the issue we're going to talk about is the age limit on elite amateur boxing. But I just wanted to remind our listeners, you know, how you came to boxing because I know you were a kickboxer initially and then evolved into getting into boxing? Uh, yeah, well, I actually started karate when I was 12, um, and then just progressively like went through that for a few years, fell in love with the fighting side. Um, after seven years, changed to kickboxing, um, and then after seven kickboxing fights, discovered my hands were so much better, so then I made the switch to boxing. So I was 20 when that happened, so from 12 to 20, it took me you know, eight years to find the right one. 
But I mean, you you were looking towards the London Olympics. You were the first female boxer to be invited to join the Australian Institute of Sport. But obviously, your dream kind of came to an end uh, because of an injury. But then you've come back to boxing since then. Yeah. So obviously, I was training pretty hard and dedicated um, a lot of my time to qualifying, or hopefully hoping to qualify for the 2012 London Olympics, which was. Uh, the debut for women's boxing into the Olympic Games. Um, I got a neck injury a week before the trial, uh, and that ended my career. I, um, to be honest, I, I never thought I'd do it again. And you know, fast forward to ten years down the track, after becoming a mum and obviously doing other things in life, I kind of found an opportunity to compete in the Masters Games, and um, kind of went down that path. And Jeff, my coach, Jeff Peterson, said, "Oh well, you may as well keep going. The state titles are two weeks later." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, why not?" And I was 39 at the time. Um, so then I kind of made the decision because 40 is the cutoff, um, that I'll just do whatever I can and get as many fights as I can in that, that period before I'm, you know, officially too old, which unfortunately is mm. pretty shitty because I'm probably in the best shape of my life after having a break and being a mom. And, you know, it's, I guess, yeah, like Kate's been saying, it's age discrimination. It really is. It should be our choice when we stop. So it's either turn pro at 40, um, or, do the Masters Games, which, you know, there's some 20-year-olds that I'm fitter than. So it's like, makes no sense. Okay, if we can turn our attention to you, because I believe you actually came to boxing a little bit later in life than, than a lot of people might do, but have obviously really made a mark for yourself since you got involved in the sport. How did it all come about for you? Yeah, I definitely got into it much later. Um, I'd done dance and netball and all those kind of things growing up in high school and had had enough of uh, playing netball and had started my university degree, um, joined up at a local gym and one of the exercise classes was a, was a boxing class. It was just a fitness boxing class. But uh, the instructor there uh, was kind of on my tail each week saying, oh, you, you show a, a bit of potential there. I'd, I'd love for you to hang around afterwards and I can teach you some proper proper boxing and he, he took some boy fighters after that class and after three months of hassling me I decided that I would uh, give it a shot and I did fall in love with it after that session um, and I haven't really looked back since then I um, kind of joined my local PCYC club and started boxing then. But, I mean, when you started, women weren't allowed to box in New South Wales. In fact, you were the very first uh, bout, which must be really a special part of history. Yeah, in hindsight, I, I, I feel uh, very privileged to have been the first female in New South Wales. Um, I was quite taken back when I had started training at, at the PCYC. I was the only girl that was there, but I assumed that women would be able to box and started going along on the Saturday nights and supporting the boys from the team and watching. And I asked my coach whether eventually maybe like with six months more practice, whether I'd be good enough to have a go in the ring. And he pretty much just said no. And I was like, oh, well, am I really that bad? Or he's like, no, you, you, you can't fight in New South Wales. And I was like, what do you mean? My jaw was down on the floor, very confused. And then I found out that, uh, the government of New South Wales had a very archaic law still in place that said that females were unable to box. Um, so my focus really was uni studies and I was just doing it as a bit of sport on the side. So I 
just was very relaxed and just came a couple of times a week. Um, however, when it was introduced to the Olympics in 2012, um, New South Wales overturned the rule because uh, it would have been discrimination there. And um, I trained up and eventually was the first female fight in New South Wales, which was very exciting. Now, the thing both of you are speaking out about at the moment is this age limit that has been brought in that you have to, as an elite amateur boxer, stop at 40. Now, there's a lot of people who are going to say, well, that's because they're concerned about your health. But, I mean, I, I've spoken to people and both have said that you, both of you were actually improving and were far better boxers now at this age than you were when you were younger. So... Where has this come from, this age limit? I mean, is it based on safety, do you think? I don't think it is based on safety. And if that was an issue, I would completely understand if IBA then said past 40, you'd have to get a brain scan to continue each year of registration. And I'm totally on board with that if that's what they're, they're thinking. But I think there are so many other factors that influence um how well you'd be able to, like, if you got into the sport at only 35 and you've only had 25 fights, it seems very silly um, that they think that you're going to be a brain injury or anything like that compared with the number of bouts. People have been boxing since they were 12 years old and some of them are the European countries. At the age of 25, they've had 400, 400 bouts. So the trauma that their brain has been exposed to is much more. And secondly, the professional boxing side, there is no age limit with it. So they're saying that me right now, even though I'm a silver medalist at the World Championships, I can't compete at the next World Championships. However, you can take off the headgear, fight 10 rounds as a professional, and that's okay. So it's contradictory, so it doesn't make sense to me. Where's the logic in that? And the the fact that way back when I was in the prime of my career, around the 2012 mark, the age limit for amateur boxing or AIBA boxing was 34. So they have changed it once before. It was 34. I'm going back 10 years ago. And then they changed it to 40. So, you know, they've done it once before. Why won't they do it again? And like Kay said multiple times, it should be a case by case. And, yeah, if we need to get an extra medical or do an extra test to show that we're in great shape, um, but yeah, it's just ludicrous that it's, you can box professionally, like she said, no head guard, smaller gloves, more rounds, mm. but you can't fight in amateur boxing or Olympic boxing, whatever you want to call it. I think they're trying to make it just boxing now, but, um, yeah, it, it no, makes you're, no you're, sense. Claire, you're a prime example though of somebody that was boxing at an elite level, had an issue got it checked out, and then obviously were forced into retirement. So there are already those checks in place to make sure. And if you're as boxers saying, look, we've got no problem if we have to have a brain scan, you know, to make sure that there is, or even what there's talk, isn't there now, of creating like a passbook where every year you have to have these checks so that they can see if there's any difference. Now, I would think most elite athletes would say, yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. To be honest, there's already pretty rigorous testing. Um, each year you have to get a medical with a doctor, which is pretty thorough. Like it takes 45 minutes in with the doctors um, getting it done to get passed, to get registration in your state every year. 
Then on top of that, if you're at a national level, when you compete internationally at a, a world champs or an international tournament, every time before that tournament, you must also get another medical to get cleared for that event. And then each time you fight, you also get cleared by a doctor before you get in the ring. So if you fight five mm. fights at that tournament, every time you see the doctor and you won't get passed unless you go through the checks with the doctor as well. So there is a fair bit of that already in place. Yeah. The thing I, I find strange as well, and, and I think some people forget this, because is amateur boxing is obviously where you learn your trade. And, and I mean, as you guys would know, having climbed through the ropes, that part of the art of the of boxing is not getting hit apart from hitting your mm -hmm. opponent. And you learn that as an amateur. And I mean, there's been criticisms in the professional game where there's people are not spending enough time in the amateur game to learn how not to get hit. Would you agree with that? That in fact, you know, as you guys have matured, you've got better at avoiding punches because you're learning that art. Yeah. Well, look, I personally, I guess, Ash, if you were to break it down like to boxer versus fighter, um, I've definitely been a boxer my entire career and that definitely suited me back in the day when it was point scoring system where both red and blue, sorry, both all judges had a panel with a red and a blue button and basically three out of the five judges had to press that button within three seconds for you to register that point. So you didn't see the standing there brawling as often as you did now. So for me, footwork's always been my asset and counterfighting's always been my asset. So, you know, I reckon I've been hit way more inspiring way back in the day than I did in the actual fights because that's, that was my style. Whereas now coming back in, I've had to learn to fight and obviously I've gotten hit, hit more now than I ever have because of the new style as well. So, uh, look, I understand what you're saying, but I guess now that they've changed the scoring system um, and it's a lot more like the pros, the whole 10-9, 10-8 round, you are seeing a lot more people getting hit and a lot more brawls happening um, and less kind of dancing around the ring, avoiding punches. It still happens, but not as often as it did. And I'm talking way, way, way back when I guess I was in my prime. When um, I was a boy. It's almost like... <laughs> <laughs> But it, but if you compare well. if you compare the Olympic style boxing to the pros, the Olympic style boxing is definitely much more that hit and don't get hit style. Yeah. Uh, the pros oh, definitely sit down on their punches; they don't move as much. You see in the later rounds, the feet sometimes, especially in the heavyweights, are almost glued on the spot and they're just banging each other. You definitely don't see that as much in the in the amateurs, which kind yeah. of is a, a better thing for any head trauma concerns. Okay, I, I was reading something that you said in an interview where you said the other thing that people forget is boxing isn't funded, amateur boxing isn't funded. So you guys, I would think because you're not getting paid, the last thing you're going to want to do is get in the ring if you're under the, feeling under a cloud, feeling unwell or whatever, because you're not getting paid for it. So again, uh -huh. your own responsibility to yourself is I'm not going to put myself in danger because I've got to earn a living. Oh, exactly. Um, I think that's very, very true. And when you're talking about these high-caliber events like the Olympics and the World Championships and international um, events, 
you're not even going to get up to that level to be exposed to it unless you win the state championship and you win the national levels, which means you have to prove yourself on those levels and you must be at a great standard to then be able to represent your country as number one to be able to fight in those tournaments. So, like, if the ability is there and the age isn't a limiter, then you've got the skills to be able to be trading and working against those other opponents, whether they're the same age or whether they're 20 years younger than you. I mean, Chris, yeah, like, what's the, what's the yeah. difference in tennis? Like, you get a, you know, a new up-and-comer who's brand new on their world stage and they come up against someone like Serena Williams. Like, surely there's a 20-plus age difference there. Like, okay, we're not physically... You know, I understand boxing's physical, but we're in weight category. We're in eight, you know, weight and um, within three kilos normally. Yeah. Maximum and the same thing, there's still Olympic sports like rugby sevens where there's a huge amount of contact. They have more problems with concussions in rugby and AFL and all that kind of stuff, and there's no age limit there. If you're good enough to make the team, you're out there yeah. playing on the field. And they're exposed to just as much trauma as what you are with with boxing. The collisions on field are are very heavy. I mean, one of the other things, and Claire, you kind of touched on it, how amateur boxing has evolved. But also, if you look at that, while the actual sports evolved, so too have the training methods. There's been improvements in the medical side of things and even technology and and the recovery methods. I mean, when I was growing up playing sport, you literally walked out, had a shower, and that was it. There was no recovery. Thing. <laughs> you might have had a, a soft drink before you tucked into a beer. That was about it, you know. But there is so much that I think you have to now take into account that all the stuff in the background is so much better that you are at less risk than you would have been 20 years ago. Yeah, oh, 100%. And, and you know, for me as well, the most important thing that I noticed as well was the weight. Like there was no education. There was, I didn't know how to make weight. I was sitting in a sauna and, you know, I fought at 60 kilos in the peak of my career. Um, but I struggled to walk around at that. I was maybe 65, 66 for a majority of the time. And I used to wonder why, why can't I maintain my fight weight? Oh, well, maybe this is my natural body weight. And it was evident that when I stopped or got injured that I had an eating disorder because I would starve myself to make weight and then I'd binge because I would tell myself, right, I've now got permission to eat and drink everything I missed out on while I was making weight. And so my weight would go up and down like a yo-yo and it did that for 10 years. Then all of a sudden I got injured and I stopped and it all fell off. And next minute I'm walking around under my fight weight. And I just think that has changed a lot as well. Like a lot of the athletes are now working with sports dietitians or, you know, people that are just helping them on meal plans and they're helping, like maintaining their weight a lot closer to uh, what they're fighting as opposed to jumping up five to 10 kilos. It was, yeah, it was shocking. And then last year at 41 years old, I fought at 57. So go figure. It's, you know, you're stronger in the mind and the body. And as you get older, you're wiser. Um, and I guess smarter because you, you learn more. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's almost like the older you get, the better you get. Um, yeah. Definitely. The understanding and advances in scientific data, in making weight, in managing um, the diets and fighters doing it in a safe format has evolved dramatically in the last five, six years. And that's another reason which lends itself as evidence to why we need to 
change this 40-year-old rule because it really is um, serving the boxing um, participants so much better that they are able to have a longer lifespan at the elite level um, in the sport. Okay, you've set up a petition to try and fight this. You're also um, now being appointed to the board of the IBA as a, the Oceana representative. Do you think that you're getting the support and you're going to be able to overturn this, or, or do you think it's something that's going to happen down the track rather than in the near future? I do think um, the amount of work that I've done has definitely um, got a bit of traction and been noticed. Um, I have actually had a response from IBA um, and they said that they are going to take it to their next um, board of directors meeting to discuss the topic. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm jumping on lots of podcasts, creating a petition online and doing as much media work as I can because the majority of people, I'm getting a lot of support and they don't understand why that rule is in place. So I really do hope that it is going to force a, a change and a, a necessary change. And we should mention it's not just for women, it's for men as well, isn't it? Correct, men and women. Well, look, it's been great catching up with the two of you. Thanks so much for your time. I think it's ridiculous, but my vote doesn't count. But I have signed the petition, so hopefully you can <laughs> get you. it across the line anyway. Yeah, if you want to jump online, either my Instagram, kscott, K-A-Y-E-S-C-O-T-T. It's in my bio there, direct link. And also my Facebook page, kscott Boxer, has the link there as well. Would love your support. Well, thanks again, Claire and Kay, for joining us. And all the best with the campaign. Cheers. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having us. Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. Listen to Not the Footy Show. It's a knockout. Check it out. Well, John, uh, what do you make of that? I mean, I, I think there's solid arguments as long as you're having medical checks and if you're being done like that. But you actually said to me off air that you think it may be that we should be doing those checks a lot air earlier in athletes that are looking to play or compete at a high level in sport. So we could just do those scans so that you can see early on any differences that well, might occur. You know, much like the blood passport that the Olympics use, or whoever uses. Um, yeah, very similar. I mean, I, saying this against the background of what's happening with concussions and all those sorts of things in the world of sport at the moment, um, why wouldn't in combat sports or high impact sports uh, as soon as you start playing you get your you get a yearly brain scan so i think that's a good idea if you are playing under 13s rugby league right where's your brain passport okay you have your scan every year compare okay you're free to play the other that's not that that's not going to Fix the problem by any stretch. It's not even going to identify half of the diseases or no, conditions yeah. that go on with your brain. But it's something. It's a start. You know that the, the, the kickback against that's going to be the cost. Yeah, well, you know. So what? who's going to pay? Because if it, if it's user pays, as we've touched on with, you know, some kids are disadvantaged with trials because they're not noticed or parents can't get them there. Same thing here. You're going to find there's a large section of the community that are not going to be able to afford 
to go and have a brain scan. I think it's incumbent upon the sport to prove it. I mean, sport can afford to pay the elite level millions and millions of dollars every year. They can afford to pay uh, for Billy's brain scan to make sure that Billy isn't suffering a brain damage from playing your sport. It's it's you're the ones making the, the millions of dollars. You're the ones that are being paid whatever it is as a CEO and as a this and that within yep. these organisations. You organizations. could probably trim a few staff to cover Marketing the cost. Marketing people, you know, they're yep. all taking their whack. And who's the ones that pay the ultimate price for it? Billy, who didn't get a brain scan when he was or fifteen, Jill. or Jill. Didn't get a brain scan when they were 15. Didn't get one at 16. When they got to 35 and they started dribbling every day, that's when they realised there might be a problem. No. But, but I do agree with both Claire and Kay that, you know, at the end of the day, competition should be performance-based and age should be irrelevant. Oh, let's face it, that rule's a joke. 100%. It's just not, it, it, it's an unfunny joke. Well, look at you. You've been playing your best hockey in your <laughs> twilight years, haven't you? Well, I had to get, I had, I got pushed kicking and screaming into playing over forties. I was quite happy playing, you know, divvy nothing in the out, in the open age groups. So what, what they're, what they're saying there is once you turn 40, you're no longer able to compete against the youngsters because they might hit you a bit harder. I mean, is that what they're getting at? I don't know. They've just chosen an age and that's it. You know know what? There's a lot of 40-year-olds who don't want to compete in the open age groups at 40. They don't have to. But But if you do want to, what? that's the whole point of having open. But you look at the professional era, there's no restrictions. No. Well, why only amateurs then? And, And why stop them from fighting someone who's 25 but allow them to fight someone who's 41 well 40 you're not allowed after 40 no you can you can fight masters can't you oh yeah you could go into masters so so you can (laughs) still box but not at the elite level you're still allowed to put yourself in the same position yeah aren't you it's just a joke nah it is look I the combat sports is some I don't like boxing is a sport I like I think there's a lot of merit to it. It's going to have its problems as we move forward in the future with, in a few areas. But when you do that to yourself, why? it's almost a restraint of trade. Yeah, I mean, the one point I would make as well is... And this Except is, it's amateur. <laughs> this, this is where boxing's got itself in trouble, is that over the years, you used to do your apprenticeship in the amateurs. And that was where, crucially, crucially, you learned not to be hit. Because boxing is as much about hitting your opponent as avoiding being hit by your opponent. And that's what you used to learn in the amateurs. And sadly now, because everybody gets an agent and the agent pushes them into the professional and promises them money, that's why I believe you're seeing a lot more really bad injury, head injuries, because they're not learning how not to be hit um, in the amateurs anymore. Is, is that sort of partly the, uh, the helmet and cricket argument? Get short pitch bowling, that same yeah, thing that I, they're I think not it is. learning yeah, absolutely. to get out of the way because there's a certain safety element with the helmet on. Yeah, and you look at the generation of coaches in cricket now who probably all grew up wearing a helmet. Well, yeah, most of them would have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas old goats like me, we didn't, you know? No, no. Well, I wish someone should teach the idiots that ride their motorcycles around here at 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> about the use of helmets. 
Anyway, what are you going to go on about? I've got a, a, a couple of small things. Let's start, okay. Let's start with something that's been really annoying me in the last few months. The language that's starting to creep into some sporting commentary by the players, coaches, everybody. I want to run two, two words for it. First of all, learnings. We took some good learnings out of the game today. Have you? Learnings. That's a new one on me. You haven't heard them using I the have term heard learnings? It. Yeah. There's many that great. It, it's just, it, it, oh yes, well there were some good learnings to be taken out of that. Uh, just stop it. You're ruining it. Learnings. And versing. What? Versing. What's that? Oh, uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves are, uh, versing. What's it mean? Versing. Well, that's what, it's verses. Oh. They're versing. Oh, they're playing again. They're versing. Now, I don't know what versing is. I was, I thought was two teams lined up and started reading bloody poetry to each other. <laughs> what is versing? Oh, we're versing. It's versus or against or versing. Oh, we well, you know poetry Guaranteed. was at one Olympic Games. I forget which one. Was it? Yeah, it might have been the St. Louis one in 32. I don't know. I'll try and check for the next Find show. Find out who won the gold medal. I will. I will get, that for, you for the, I will get that for you for the next <laughs> podcast. And now, okay, we've got past a couple of little trivial things. But versing gives you the urge. Um Anzac Day. Mm-hmm. Well, we've recently, and this partly talks about a sport we don't talk about, but it's only because it does it as well. We've recently had Anzac Week celebrations amongst football codes here in the country. Started Thursday night. Finished Tuesday. Six days of the last post. And yeah, Anzac we, commemorations. We had that in other sports as well. Yeah, we did. Yeah, all started all Friday through to Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nearly a week. It's Anzac Day. Day. And this horrific commercialisation of a day that should be a, a solemn, significant day is doing my head in. I am so sick of it. It is not an excuse for you to rush out a special jumper commemorating Anzac Day. You don't commemorate Anzac Day, mate. It is not a day for that. Yeah. Okay? So all this just total commercialisation of it is so irritating and it oh, makes wrong us in my book. Yeah, it's wrong. You know what? Let's have a proper Anzac Day. Let's nobody nothing is open on a on a, the morning of Anzac Day. Like it used to be. Nothing is open until and midday. And there's no sport. I don't mind the idea that I don't mind there is but but don't but it's not a week of Anzac Day celebration. Yeah, but I also think some some of them have done really tastefully, I have to say. But sometimes I also think some of them again are, are cashing in Absolutely. on the myth of those who have given their lives for us. Every our, team now us. has to have a special jumper that immediately go on sale in the club shop, and some of them can't even get it right. They can't even get Australian soldiers on them. Um, it just. We're losing the solemnity of what should be a very, very special day. And it just gets washed up in all of this hyper-televisionised bollocks. It's just, stop it. Just stop it. 
Well, I'm going to wrap up then, John, because we've got to go soon before you blow a gasket. But uh, one thing that I I happened to see on social media, there was a certain sport uh, put a post up going, you know, wishing all everybody a blessed Eid, you know, celebration. Nothing wrong with that. And I was like, well, that's interesting that they've done that. Uh, Did they put anything up for Easter? Did they put anything up for Christmas? Hanukkah? Hanukkah, any of the other religious um, holidays for other religions, absolutely nothing. So this is a sport that claims it's inclusive. If you're going to do it, do it for every sport. If you're not, don't do it. And it goes for all sports, that as well. If you're oh, putting, it does. If you're putting up Have a Happy Easter, then you should put up Have a Happy Eid. Or I don't know what Hindu religious days there are. There's a lot of Indians in, living in our country now that yeah. we should be including that. No, I, th- I, I just think exactly that. If, you, if you're going to say you're inclusive, do it for everybody or don't do it at all. See ya. We'll be back next week.